Next week is the two-year anniversary of Russia's war in Ukraine. And when you think about Ukraine these days, you think about the war. Bombed out buildings, barren landscapes, soldiers in fatigues. Chances are you don't think about Unit City. And it really stands out because it's this incredibly shiny, glossy, ultra-modern set of offices. That's Vera Bergengruen, a senior correspondent at Time. And Unit City is the hub of Ukraine's booming tech scene. It's near Kyiv. Vera drove by late last year. Uh, they've got conference rooms. They've got these very futuristic kind of neon models of what they think this is going to look like because it's a whole campus. It's got classrooms. It's got labs. And it's actually built on the grounds of a former Soviet motorcycle factory. So it still has this towering chimney uh, that used to make these knockoff German motorcycles uh, until recently. And they decided to build this tech campus on top of it. I think there was over 200 companies there, 4,000 tech workers. Wow. And Ukrainians really believe, young Ukrainians really believe in creating, that this is going to be the future of their economies. So it's incredibly, you know, just incredibly polished. Tech companies, both big global players and Ukrainian startups, have essentially turned the battlefield into a laboratory. Vera talked with dozens of Ukrainian officials and companies eager to show off their wartime innovations. They want to show off this very Silicon Valley kind of vibe. You know, they're there, there's beanbag chairs, there's ping pong tables. Uh, and then they showed me their bomb shelter, which is incredibly nice as well. They've been targeted a few times nearby. They've got pieces of the missiles that fell apart that they've kind of oh, wow. made little uh, awards from now. You know, you're always waiting for an air raid siren. Oh. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a contrasting mood. It's incredibly energetic, but it's also just incredible. You know that there's something happening that isn't normal. Even before the war, Ukraine's tech scene was booming, mainly focused on IT and commercial technology, goofy apps, that kind of thing. The plan was to turn the country into a European tech hub, leveraging its very skilled talent base. But those plans were cut short. We're coming on the air at this hour with breaking news after the U.S. warned all day of a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine that it was imminent, Vladimir Putin has just addressed the Russian people moments ago, announcing what Putin called the start of a military special operation, in his words, to demilitarize Ukraine. That Russia would Since then, the tech industry focused all its energy on beating back the Russians. Gone are the days of the fun apps. People who used to, you know, do this kind of TikTok app where you can put your voice on top of an actor's body, all those kind of <laughs> things, are now using that same transcription app to de-jargon Russian, you know, transcripts or something. Meanwhile, private tech companies from around the world, notorious players like Palantir and Clearview AI, the facial recognition company, are flocking to Ukraine, offering their services to the fight. For them, testing tech on a real battlefield speeds up development, and you don't have to worry about rules, red tape, or privacy regulations in the middle of a war. Is this the new face of, of war industrial complex? It's difficult to argue against it, uh, partly because we've never seen a war like this. I don't think we've quite seen this combination of, again, of, of young tech talent, of people who, and of commercial tech and private tech companies merging with a government where everyone's kind of involved in the same mission. It's very strange and very new. So today on the show, the war in Ukraine has ushered in a new era of warfare. 
and it's given some pretty notorious companies a chance to look like the good guys. But what happens after the war is over? I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, the show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Prior to the invasion, Ukraine had a strong tech industry. How has it really changed since then? Ukraine was a massive IT hub before the war. It was the, one of the top hubs in Europe. It had, you know, about 300,000, 400,000 IT engineers uh, and software specialists who worked there, who were mainly working, uh, who were mainly outsourcing. They were working for American and European tech companies. So the talent pool there was fairly well known. GitHub, uh, Grammarly, a lot of companies that we may have heard of are, you know, actually Ukrainian and were based there at the time. And a lot of people were opening offices there. A lot of tech companies wanted that Ukrainian tech talent. And as I said, during the war, all of that talent basically trained itself squarely on military and defense tech. Of course, Ukraine has been at war for eight years. Uh, You know, it had been at war for a long time since 2014 before Russia launched this full-scale invasion. But most people were just working on normal tech, normal apps, just lots of, you know, things that we use here as well. And now suddenly they're learning how a drone works, you know, how to establish Wi-Fi in a bomb shelter, all these different things. And so uh, I think the way that obviously the tech industry has changed the most is that people have adapted all of these tools, you know, because if you're a Ukrainian, uh, it's hard to overstate just how much everyone is motivated and involved. I mean, their country is being invaded. They all have friends on the front lines. Many of them have family in occupied territories. So if you've got any skills whatsoever that you can use to the war effort, you will. It's not just the Ukrainian people who are focused on working in tech now. Tech companies from outside Ukraine are getting invited in, are investing money. Why are they so interested? Is it just because they want to help the cause or what's really going on? So it's very interesting. Uh, We're seeing some companies go in that specifically have it as their mission to, you know, defend the West and to help, you know, help democracy and all these things. And some of these are fairly controversial tech companies uh, like Palantir and Clearview AI, which is a facial recognition company. But most of these tech companies, I think, really felt the need to help Ukraine at the beginning because for the first time it was almost, uh, I don't want to call it a good war, but for them it was very black and white. And you saw Microsoft, Google, Amazon, companies that rarely took a geopolitical stance all offering their services to Ukraine and also pulling their services out of Russia. But uh, on the other hand, I think a lot of companies noticed early on that a war provides an incredibly, just an invaluable opportunity to test the barriers of their tech and to find new ways to use it. And again, especially when combined with this very tech-savvy, very motivated young Ukrainian talent pool. And so they knew that if they gave them, you know, access to their cloud space, access to different software, uh, they were going to adapt it and probably kind of push the barriers of what's possible with that tech. So um, we keep saying tech, but a lot of this is to do with, with AI, like so many things right now. Um, but like when I think of AI in war, I think of like a robot. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Terminator. All right, listen. The Terminator's an infiltration unit, part man, part machine. Underneath it's a hyper alloy combat chassis, microprocessor controlled, 
fully armored, very tough. Right in the first one, where he's like a war kill, killer robot guy with the red eyes. Um, but that's not what's happening here. How, how is AI being utilized in Ukraine? The part that has been uh, talked about the most and the most that uh, has been most transformative is, you know, drones. And obviously, we all basically think of killer robots or something like that. Yeah. Um, but really, a lot of it's just kind of more pedestrian. A lot of it's data. A lot of it's just data streaming into a database and then AI models that analyze it very quickly. So we've got, uh, again, satellite imagery, commercial satellite imagery, which uh, has never been used in this way before in war to this extent. We've got thermal images that can detect, you know, when some when there's people on the ground or when there's artillery fire. We've got you know, certain radars that can see through clouds, uh, which already cuts down the time to get a clear image of something. We've got open source scraping of, you know, like, as I mentioned, Ukrainian reports that they're sending their government from the ground on Telegram or in messaging apps on Facebook. All of this goes into one place. Wow. And then models basically can present military commanders with options, you know, in a way that is just so much faster than we used to be able to do. It would have taken analysts, human analysts, you know, a couple of days or several hours to really go through all this, figure out what makes sense and then say, okay, here's how you can strike this position or here's what you can do to get yourself out of the way. Uh, now, you know, and this is only in the military sense, it's basically just shortened that chain significantly. I mean, that all sounds revolutionary, but the the war now, two years in, it's essentially at I think most people would say it's it's at a, a stalemate. Is Ukraine at a stalemate? Would it have lost already if not for the tech? If you ask the Ukrainians or a lot of their tech company allies, they definitely would make the case that they would have, you know, I'm not sure if lost the war, but they would not be, they wouldn't have been able to defend themselves in this way without this edge, uh, without having, you know, Starling terminals that provide connectivity on the battlefield. Um, because ultimately they're they're fighting a much larger, better armed adversary. And uh, they were able to hold them off and push them back and defend their capital. Partly, they say, because of the advantage that, you know, this asymmetric advantage that tech gives them. Ukraine's battlefields are where this new generation of tech is being developed. And a lot of people smarter than I, you know, say that, you know, there's been these three stages. There's been the invention of gunpowder, the invention of nuclear weapons, and now it's going to be AI means everything, right? But like, yeah. generally speaking, AI, that's going to be the next wave. Uh, of course, we're not seeing the fully mature version in Ukraine yet. It's being really developed. So I think uh, in the what a lot of people are basically anticipating is that in the future, as this form of warfare accelerates, whoever has the technological advantage will basically be able to achieve victory much quicker or, or, or serve as a deterrent. But right now, what we're seeing in Ukraine is this weird combination of a World War II style war being fought with, you know, 21st century weapons. And uh, it's, it's, it's just very much in this transitional phase. When we come back, how two of the most infamous tech companies in the U.S. are attempting to rehabilitate their images in Ukraine. companies have been involved in the war in Ukraine since the beginning. One is Palantir. They're probably best known for using data analytics to find people for law enforcement agencies. 
you know, they have a controversial reputation in the U.S. because they uh, started off as basically the tech arm of intelligence agencies, providing them with all of this data analytics software. They were used by uh, immigration enforcement. They were used in ways that people found intrusive and, you know, to track migrants, to do all these different things that were very controversial uh, at the time. Uh, you know, now, again, they they see this as, you know, if there's any advantage that a country like Ukraine can have from our tech, why would we not give it to them? Another company working with Ukraine free of charge is Clearview AI. It specializes in facial recognition software. Clearview is fascinating to me because they have tech that other companies like Google easily could have developed and basically did, but knew they could never sell without right. having a huge reputational problem. Uh, Clearview didn't care. Clearview is basically a code. It's basically an app that gives you access to a database of, I think, up to 4 billion photos at this point. The, the CEO said, I'll, I'll teach it to you. Here's a, let's do a Zoom seminar. They taught <laughs> all these Ukrainian officials how to use it. And suddenly they were able to identify, it's an incredible number of people. They were able, basically you upload a photo of a Russian soldier and it found their Facebook, it found their name, their hometown, all of that. And they were able to uh, even identify partially burned Russian soldiers. And they used this information in many ways. They used this to, in one way, kind of shame them. If somebody's committing a war crime, if you're illegal invading a country, you know, you're not going to have much of a future outside of Russia if you ever want to travel to Europe or anywhere else, if you're on this list. On the other hand, they were also basically putting deceased Russian soldiers on this website with their names where Russian families could, who didn't know they were in Ukraine could look them up and find out whether, you know, somebody had been killed. Again, this is incredibly intrusive and scary tech when you think about a local uh, police department using it in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, this is a, like, just a remarkable opportunity for these two companies to kind of cleanse their reputations and really look like like good guys. Are they thinking about this? They'll kind of say that this is part of their mission. It's always been Palantir's very clear. <laughs> right. You know, they say, you know, we we from the very start have always helped, you know, we've always worked with governments. Uh, its CEO, Alex Karp, told me that he thinks there should be a law that U.S. tech companies have to give the government, you know, their products. Because for him, it's a matter of the U.S. and uh, its allies having the strongest tech possible. And so for them, they would say, you know, this is nothing different. We've been doing this all along. We don't sell to China, Russia, to adversaries. We we only do this. Clearview has a whole part of its website devoted to its work in Ukraine. Uh, Palantir loves to publicize its work in Ukraine because not only is it being used for the military, but it's being used to help with demining, you know, to, to clear landmines, to help schools. Uh, all of this data is being used by the government for humanitarian purposes as well, to resettle refugees. And so it, obviously they love talking about it because it's a good use of it and it obviously has a clear reputational uh, benefit, which you can't get from saying, you know, we work with, uh, you know, ICE. And not just to their reputation, but to their their business. Once they have have this use case in Ukraine, then it's just an easier sell, even to those countries that have banned it, maybe in the private sector, take it would take another look, seeing what they've been able to accomplish here. I would think so. It, so far, it seems that both businesses are doing quite well. Um, I'm not sure some people wouldn't even admit it, but uh, you know, seeing how it's used in Ukraine has opened people's eyes to the effectiveness of this tech because in many ways, uh, they can't talk about it as much. If you're helping a police department in Miami, you're probably not putting out press releases about how great your technology or your facial recognition software is. But if you're helping find Ukrainian children kidnapped in Russia, then you're going to show it off. 
I mean, Palantir's business is booming. And again, working with this particular government allows them, because the Ukrainians want to talk about it, it gives them a much bigger platform to talk about their their business than I think, you know, working with the US government or the British government or anyone else. So it does feel very lucrative. And then just one last thing there is obviously the Ukrainians, again, being very skilled, have improved their products quite a bit. Engineers with both companies told me that having these people take it, adopt it, suggest new things, you know, they've clearly improved it in a way wow. where it's a life of death situation that you don't have if you're using it in an office in Minneapolis, you know, there's there's a different kind of motivation that goes into it. And it definitely is driving a lot of innovation. So, I mean, tech companies and governments have been sort of mixed up in war before this. I'm thinking like chip development in the US, you know, Department of Defense funded a lot of that before it moved to the mainstream. And now there's chips everywhere and everything. But in this case, it seems like the innovation is less like and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's less like coming from the government. It's really these private companies really seeing this opportunity to use Ukraine as as a lab. Um, and they're the ones kind of leading the charge. Is that true? Should I be worried about it? A lot of people are quite concerned about that. And it's not because, you know, governments being the agents of change or innovation has worked out great for the world in the past. Definitely not. But, you know, there is a case to be made, according to uh, a lot of people I speak with who who work a lot, you know, both government officials and, and tech watchers and, and analysts and national security experts who say that ultimately uh, most governments, most Western go- democratic governments are accountable to their people. So to an extent, there's some accountability there usually, or at least yeah. some transparency. Eventually something will come out. If private tech companies are independent actors who are now, most of them are way more powerful than almost any country on earth, but they are motivated by improving products and ultimately profit. So if that is the driving factor and that is what they weigh a lot of decisions against when deciding whether to enter a war, support a certain side in conflict, that is incredibly problematic. And uh, it is the future. You can't really fight it. I think many people would look at it and say, how is that that different from a government? Even, you know, these reports of Elon Musk, who is just one person having the power to say, shut off the Starlink connection and inhibiting a Ukrainian operation by its Navy. You know, the, the, the power is in the hands of very, very, very few people. And again, their motivation right now, most of the companies, their goals align with U.S. national security goals. They say, we would never sell this to Russia or China. We are on the side of the West, as they say. But that is likely not going to be the case in the future. And again, tech companies as independent actors having this incredible amount of power uh, is a brave new world we'll have to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, there was reporting months ago that Elon Musk refused to have Starlink turned on when for, for um, an offensive that Ukraine wanted to conduct. Uh, and there was reporting from Ronan Farrow, I think in The New Yorker, that um, officials in the Biden administration were basically begging Elon Musk to, you know, turn Starlink back on. That just seems like the worst case scenario. Right. Again, Right now, they say, these tech companies say that they are only going to supply it to, you know, countries that are fighting a righteous cause, but they are the arbiters of that. So it's, it's I think a lot of people are definitely very concerned. There's few things to prevent these, uh, a lot of these technologies, a lot of these tools of just falling into the hands of bad actors as well. A lot, you know, there could be a lot of proliferation. And so I think it's hard for us to picture because 
in terms of software, it's easier for us to picture this with nuclear weapons right. or something like that. But uh, but that is definitely, like you said, a lot of power concentrated in the hands of one person uh, and then the most powerful government in the world begging that one CEO of a tech company to help. And that's you know going to become more and more problematic. Ukraine, in many senses, was for many people, a black and white scenario where Russia was invading, you know, the West was on the side of Ukraine, but there's going to be a lot of other wars where that is not the case. It's just going to be incredibly complicated to navigate. Do you think what's happening with tech in Ukraine, have you seen it shaping war efforts anywhere else? We've definitely seen a lot of the developments in Ukraine, a lot of the innovation already kind of being mirrored elsewhere. There were reports, uh, for example, that Hamas adopted some of the drone techniques uh, on October 7th. Uh, and, and afterwards, you know, just a lot of the the drone warfare immediately gets adopted. A lot of the little improvements, the different cheap ways that you can use drones have been disseminated. Taiwan, uh, basically citing Ukraine's example explicitly, has been partnering with commercial space companies and getting private companies in to shape their drone program because, you know, obviously there's a lot of rising tensions with China. Ukraine's war is not even over. It's not an era where one war ends and then the lessons are neatly applied to the next. These are all overlapping conflicts where little improvements and, again, cheap ways to improve, for example, a drone or imagery or anything like that immediately gets uh, co-opted by the next person that can use it. So I think we're going to see a lot of more of that going forward. And what happens to Ukraine after all this? I mean, Clearview AI, facial recognition is kind of out of the, out of the bottle there. Um, what happens when the, war, when the war ends? Is this is Ukraine now a surveillance state? Has it created that, you know, skeleton for itself? I spoke to a lot of Ukrainians who are incredibly concerned about that because they say, you know, let's also remember that Ukraine is trying to join the EU and it's making itself, you know, it's, it wants to be a European country. It would have to adopt a lot of the same privacy regulations, which are the strictest in the world when it comes to data. And Ukraine, you know, at the same time is facing this, again, existential threat that is making it re really heavily rely on intrusive technology. And it's very difficult to imagine. I mean, when I spoke to people in October, 1,500 uh, Ukrainian officials were using Clearview AI, had access to it. it this stuff is out. You know, it's a, basically a code that you can use. And even though they say that they, they're they tracking it, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's out there. It's hundreds and hundreds of officials using it for whatever they want, including to identify Ukrainian collaborators, things like that. And, and it's an incredibly effective tool. And I cannot see any world in which they will just give it up because it will help them in everything after the war, right? But at the same time, you're then trying to join a, a group of countries that are partially banning this technology because it conflicts with their laws. And so, you know, it, it is a really big problem to grapple with. And a lot of Ukrainian privacy advocates and human rights groups told me that they also don't want to be seen as this country that ally, you know, that partners closely with, with what they call kind of, you know, the bad tech guys or the controversial guys. You know, so far, there's no indication that any of this goes away after the war. And Ukraine's really going to have to grapple with how to rein it in and how to, uh, again, basically tell people who are uh, even not in wartime struggling with a lot of challenges inside of Ukraine that they cannot use this incredibly effective tech because, you know, martial law is gone and now you have to comply to different regulations. So that's going to be a really fascinating thing to observe in the future. Vera, thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
Vera Bergen-Gruen is a senior correspondent at Time covering national security, politics, and tech. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell, Anna Phillips, and Patrick Fort. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back Sunday with more episodes. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you can catch me over on Slate Money every Saturday. Thanks for listening.